our topic this morning is who's welcome at the table. And I'd like to read for you from Mark chapter 2. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the, tax, the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Before we pray this morning, I'd like to just stop and have a moment and reflect. Uh, this is Memorial Day weekend. Um, on Thursday morning, John Dean and I were in Boston walking through the common very early, and I took this photo of all the flags that they'd set up, uh, beginning to, to think of how we prepare for Memorial Day. And I know that we have two families in our church that, that lost uh, loved ones while they were serving. Perhaps there are others I don't know about. But let's just take a moment of silence and then let me pray over this. Father God, thank you for raising up people who serve others and even serve at the risk of their lives. We ask that you will continue to console the families who have lost loved ones serving the cause of freedom and that you will continue to raise up others who fight for what is right, who put others first. We struggle over this balance, Lord, between putting you first and our nation first, but it is a very high priority for us nonetheless. And I pray that you will give us the kind of hearts that serve others and then hearts that also remember and revere those who serve well and serve in a costly way. Guide us this morning as we walk through this particular service and as we look into your word again, we ask that you would instruct us we ask that you would help us to understand the calling of Jesus on our lives and that you would continue to transform us so that day by day, week by week, year by year, we become more like Jesus. Holy Spirit, we invite you to guide us as we try to understand and as we think through how we apply the Word of God to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I just realized I dropped my glasses somewhere, so I am struggling up here. If I miss words, it's because I can't see uh, my notes in front of me, and we'll find out how much I can remember uh, this morning. <laughs> Thank you. I don't know if those will help. Oh, no, they're not going to fit me. Thank you, but that's oh, okay. okay. Very kind. Very kind. Uh, Odell Belger is a pastor in another part of the country, and he, he notes that most of us take trips around these United States or abroad for a variety of reasons some for business, some to see relatives, sometimes to relax in a different environment, sometimes because we want to explore new places. A man and his wife were driving an RV through Florida, and they came upon one of those unusual towns, and they weren't sure how to pronounce Kissimmee, Florida. 
And they, they noted the strange spelling and tried to figure out what's the right emphasis in pronouncing that name. Is it Kissimmee or is it Kissamy? So they were hungry and they decided to pull over and get something to eat. And when they got to the counter, the man asked the waitress, my wife and I can't seem to figure out how to pronounce the name of this place. Will you tell me where we are and then say it very slowly so that I can understand? And the waitress kind of looked at him in a puzzled way, and then she said very slowly, Burger King. <laughs> Along with Kissimmee, our United States have several places that are very interesting, that have very interesting names. There's Caress, West Virginia, Flirtation, Colorado, Kiss Me Quick, South Dakota, Deception Creek, Arkansas, Yum Yum, Tennessee, Ding Dong, Texas. Who would want to be from Ding Dong, Texas? Come on. <laughs> Dew Stop, Kentucky, Goon Dip Mountain, Alaska, Grasshopper Junction, Arizona, Monkey's Eyebrow, Kentucky, and believe it or not, there's a Santa Claus, Georgia. Now, we encounter places like these for many reasons. But Jesus always had a reason for going to the places where we find him traveling through the pages of the Gospels. He specifically came to earth on a mission to seek and to save those who are spiritually lost and far from God. For the past several weeks, we've been walking our way through several themes that come from this little book he gets us and that are tied to the advertising theme that uh, made its debut with the Super Bowl, but you see every once in a while. The, the He Gets Us moniker has shown up in, in ballparks during games and in commercials on television. And uh, these ads have caused curiosity, and they continue to draw people to think about Jesus from a variety of view, viewpoints. So I'd like you to watch this next one. It's real short, but it's called The Dinner. <laughs> A caring man took a walk. Everywhere he looked, people suffered. Anxiety ran high. Hope dwindled. Hatred rose. His neighbors had lost trust in the system and in each other. I need to do something, he thought. I'll bring them together and feed them. Around the dinner table, they can talk and see how much they have in common. Shared struggles. Shared joy shared pain. So he prepared a feast and invited all into his home. But some refused to sit at his table because they chose to only see differences. He was heartbroken because he wanted everyone to eat and be filled, not with food and wine, but with compassion. So the attention-getting part of that ad is the statement that Jesus welcomed all to the table. Well, let's ask that question. Who was welcomed at the table? Who's welcome at our table when we think through church and, and how we gather together? So let me just say good morning and welcome to North River today. Welcome to everybody who is here in the room and in person. I'm really glad that you're here. Talked with several of you already and very glad to see you. And welcome to all of you who are watching online today as well. Thanks for welcoming us into your living room or your office or wherever you are watching from. 
With our hybrid approach, I continue to meet people almost every week who tell me they've been watching our services online for a few months, for a half a year, sometimes for a year, and then they finally have decided to show up in person and to meet some of us. I love that. I love the way that's working. And wherever you are, I hope that you will think deeply about Jesus and that you will move in the direction that he pushes you toward. Here's the big idea for this morning that I want to get across. Following Jesus on mission forces us to cross man-made boundaries in order to include the people he wants to reach next. So the question is, who's welcome at the table? And I'd like to put this in the, in the sense of we are learning from Jesus' example. And so I, I've put the observations that I've made uh, more in, a, in an active form so that we can take these as, as action steps. Here, here's the first lesson we learned from Jesus in, in this scenario. Use your influence to further the mission. We read in, in verses 13 and 14, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Right away, we notice that there are crowds of people who are following Jesus. The context of this account puts Jesus back on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And loud, large crowds of people began to find their way to him. The news was out, and they flocked to him. And Jesus was teaching these crowds of people. As he was walking, he noticed a man named Levi sitting at a tax collector's booth. So we see that using his influence comes in two different ways in these two verses. First, we see the way that he used his influence in large gatherings. There were times when Jesus engaged crowds of people who gathered to hear him. Jesus routinely stewarded that influence rather than resenting that celebrity or that, that crush of the crowd or, or falling in love with celebrity status. Celebrity seems to be a strange phenomenon. I read some time ago that Elvis Presley said that before he died, he had to live like a prisoner under house arrest because of his fame. Sometimes if he would walk out into a crowd of people, they would mob him and they would try to tear off his clothing to have a souvenir. Well, Jesus didn't have that problem, but the Gospels reveal moments when he had to get away from the crowds and away from, from all of the demands on his time that way. And he stewarded his influence. By stewarding his influence, I mean that Jesus used crowd moments to teach something that was important. And his teaching always centered on helping people understand the kingdom of God. The second way that we see him using his influence is that we see Jesus zero in on individuals and small crowd gatherings. So it's important that we see that how Mark draws, us, draws our attention away from the crowd and toward Levi. Jesus easily moved from large crowd influence to smaller gathering influence. So there was a strategic balance to his methods. In general, he used large crowd moments to create smaller moments of impact. We don't fully know what Jesus taught that day or how the crowd impacted, but we do see the lasting impact that he had on Levi and a group of Levi's friends. When we emulate Jesus, we learn to steward our influence as well. When we do this, we use, we use large-scale moments to set up smaller moments of impact. One-on-one -on -one meetings, smaller gatherings that allow you to maximize your influence. 
Where do you do that? Well, within your family, there will be times when you impact the whole group, but your greatest influence will often come in those moments when you have a one-on-one time with one particular member and you're pouring into that person's life, you're investing in that person. For several years, I have been one of four monthly speakers at the Thursday morning men's breakfast in Boston. And they meet every Thursday morning. They're usually about 60 to 100 businessmen that are there. And if you will, that's my other congregation. But, but I've noticed that one of, the, one of the greatest opportunities for impact comes not in speaking to the larger group, but in the follow-up questions that come after those gatherings. Or every once in a while, there's one of those businessmen who'll say, can you find a day when I can come down and have lunch with you or coffee with you? And I'm, I'm finding that that Thursday morning Bible study, if you will, becomes church for a lot of these guys who have not really settled into a place. Or they're in churches that don't have great teaching, but they come to Thursday morning because there, there tends to be a, a richer fare with the rotation of speakers that are a part of that. All of this is using large crowd moments to set up smaller moments of impact. And that works in all of our lives, and we see that from Jesus as well. Here's the second way that we emulate Jesus in this area. Practice the art of noticing. What a great skill Jesus developed, and what a great example he left for us. So verse 14 says very simply, as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Notice again how Mark draws our attention away from the crowd and toward Levi. Jesus had just been teaching a very large crowd, but that's really not what Mark wants us to fix our gaze upon. He draws in so that he shows us how Jesus noticed Levi sitting at this booth at the entry to a village or a city. So think of it. What did Jesus see in that moment? The booth would have been located near a town gate. From this location, the tax collector could tap everyone who came in or out of that gate over a period of time. Most likely, it wasn't a toll booth. Remember toll booths when we had them before everything was done electronically? You couldn't go forward without going through the gate, handing over some money, and then sometimes the, the physical gate would lift and you, and you were able to drive through. This was a little bit different, uh, but more than likely, there was an annual or seasonal tax that the Roman government imposed on the people who were living in Israel And these tax collectors were the people who were part of Jewish society who would partner with the Romans and they would collect that tax. They would keep a list and they would mark who had paid and who had not paid. And sometimes the tax collectors got rich by overcharging or charging again those who had already paid. I talked with a friend who's a tax collector this morning and she said, you know, you make me feel bad when you read passages like this. And so we had a good laugh about that. But, you know, we live in a fortunate time when people like this work for our local towns or our cities or our state, or our, and, and, and they have very uh, well-prescribed patterns of how taxes are collected. This was a much rougher, easily corruptible process. And this immediately raised questions about how Jesus would regard this man known as Levi, because tax collectors were pretty much hated by the Jewish society in these Galilean towns. The reason was they'd worked for the Romans and they often cheated their neighbors. Here we see that Jesus noticed Levi. He didn't just pass him by, but he saw a spiritually and relationally compromised and maybe even hungry man and he focused on him. 
Some time ago, I heard John Ortberg refer to this as the practice or the art of noticing, that there are people all around us each day who are routinely ignored by others. They're often aware that they are routinely ignored, and they develop ways to get over that, and it affects them deeply. Why does this happen? Well, we tend to focus on cultural expectations, who fits those and who doesn't, and when someone doesn't measure up, it's very easy to move on and to look past them. How wonderful that Jesus wasn't like that. He saw value in all kinds of people. When we notice those who are too often overlooked, powerful moments are created. Several years ago here in Pembroke, there used to be a dry cleaners in the, in the Pembroke Center, and I had heard Lee Strobel talk about the concept of strategic patronage as a means of evangelism, meaning there are certain things that you do that are part of your routine every week, and why not make that a regular event and develop relationships along with that? So I started taking my shirts to this particular cleaner. I knew I had to get them uh, processed somewhere, and it was on my way to work each day. So uh, for years, I took my dry cleaning to the same shop, and I began to strike a, a conversation with the owner and also with the woman who very often worked the desk. There were a couple of times when I came, and she was standing out in front having her cigarette break. So I'd stand with her, and I'd just chat, and we'd talk, rather than giving, giving her the sense that I was important and she needed to come inside right then and handle my business. Well, that paid off years later. There was one particular Sunday when we were here at church, and I noticed this woman in the crowd, and, and a friend had invited her to church, and she didn't realize this was the church where I worked. And so we stood out at the front door afterward, and she said, halfway through the service, I realized who you are. You're the guy who always brought your dry cleaning, and you were the one guy who would stop and talk with me outside when I was having my cigarette break. She put her faith in Christ largely because of those contacts and how that was developed over time. And I got to baptize her, which is a phenomenal reality. The, the art of noticing. I'm not sure that I ever would have if I hadn't heard that challenge from John Ortberg. Here's the third lesson we learned from Jesus. Invite people to belong before they believe. So let's take verse 14 in full now. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth, Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. There seems to be no doubt that Levi knew who Jesus was. People all around the villages of Galilee were talking about Jesus. He had a group of disciples who had formed and they were traveling around with him. Stories about miraculous healings and changing water into wine filled the air. The way that Mark writes about this gives us the idea that the crowd was still following Jesus, trailing behind him as he walked along the road when Jesus began to notice Levi. It is most likely that this man named Levi was also known as Matthew, and he became a disciple of Jesus. Matthew's gospel, chapter 9, includes virtually the same event using the name Matthew instead of Levi. You might be puzzled over that. Well, having two names was not all that unusual for people in that time. Think of Simon, the brother of Andrew, who becomes known as Peter or Simon Peter. Or in Acts, we meet, we meet Joseph, who's nicknamed Barnabas. And we never hear the name Joseph again. We just hear Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. 
In the second century, when the Gospel of Matthew had been widely circulated and endorsed among the churches, church leaders attributed this first gospel to Matthew because it was the only gospel that, that identified Matthew as that tax collector. They figured that Matthew himself would have been the one to settle this debate. So here, we see Jesus focusing on Levi or Matthew, and he simply said, follow me. Jesus doesn't instantly question him about his theology. He doesn't hand him an application form to fill out and say, here, let us know all of your background. We'll tell you whether you're in or whether you're out among the disciples. He just says, follow me. They were actually, though, the words that a rabbi would say to a star student, as if to say, I think that you have what I have, and maybe you can be the person through whom God will speak to this community. Come follow me and adopt my way of life. Most of the early students in Hebrew school had started young, and and they'd heard the rabbi say something different, go ply your father's trade. But only the best of the best would ever hear those words. So think of all these men who were fishermen and carpenters or tax collectors. They hear Jesus say words they never thought that they would hear. Come follow me. In other words, I think that you have the kind of life, you have the kind of skills that God wants to use in a significant way. He was in effect saying, follow me and I'll give you a whole new life of spiritual impact. And Matthew got up and he left his job behind and he followed Jesus. In doing this, Jesus was inviting Levi to belong even before you believe. That's a concept we've embraced here at North River. We have expectations for members and for leaders that are at a higher level, but more is expected from those who teach or lead or shepherd a group of people here. At the same time, we work hard to create pathways to allow people to get involved where you are and where you start to belong when you're new. So come on in and get involved, kick the tires, check out Jesus, check out North River, and when you're ready, there are ways for you to belong and to get involved even before you've figured out everything about what you believe about the Bible. Here's the fourth lesson. Cross boundaries to include people. Let's read the rest of the way this story plays out. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, so we've moved from him saying, follow me, and now he's gone to Levi's home, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. What was the boundary that Jesus crossed? We need to understand that the Pharisees were a sect within first century Jewish life who sought to make every home a center for holy living before God. That's That's a good thing. It's a good intention. But their intention, while initially good, began to take things way too far. One of the customs that they developed was to only have meals with people who were like themselves. And soon they judged others by the company that they kept. If those people didn't follow the strict religious traditions of the Pharisees, they were judged to be compromisers who polluted themselves by having contact with ordinary, common, or known sinners. So Jesus wasn't crossing boundaries set up by God, 
but boundaries set up by the traditions of the Pharisees. He did this by having a meal with Levi and his friends that day and enjoying their company. The more important question is not what boundaries he crossed, but why did Jesus cross boundaries like this? And so he tells us, it all goes back to the mission. Jesus had not come to reward those who are convinced that they're spiritually all right and never need anything from God. Rather, he came in the way that a doctor does, to help those who are missing something spiritually or who are sick, or in this case, to help all who are caught up in sinful patterns. Last I checked, that's about 100% of us. Uh, We all get caught there. I sure do too. But there are times when some people see themselves as outside of that, and the Pharisees saw themselves as people who needed no spiritual help at all. They had it all figured out. Jesus did not see the church as a showcase for saints. Rather, he saw it as a hospital for sinners, where we get well the more time we spend reflecting on Jesus and his word. Levi was so moved by Jesus' invitation to follow him that he threw a huge luncheon, and he invited all of his friends who happened to have a lot in common with him, and this absolutely frosted the Pharisees. So they complained to Jesus' disciples. They wouldn't take Jesus on directly yet, but they start to pull the disciples aside, and they say, why does he eat with people like this? When Jesus heard this, he clarified his mission. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. If we are honest we see that the church over time has struggled with this part of the mission. Church leaders across the board and pastors can have a natural drift toward some level of Phariseeism in this regard. Why? Long-time Christians want to raise our families in a safe environment. We want our kids to be impacted by people who share the same beliefs we have and who have a consistency in what's modeled. I get that. I understand that. And if we go too far with that, we can settle for church people looking good on the outside. But Jesus came to radically transform everyone from the inside. Here's one of the things that I've been teaching for more than 30 years here. It takes an unselfish church to have an outward focus. It takes an unselfish church to say, we want all kinds of people that haven't figured everything out yet here with us because that's where we have influence. That's where God works, because God is also in the process of changing us to make us more like Jesus. And I don't think any of us are there yet. I know I'm not there yet. Following Jesus on mission forces us to cross man-made boundaries in order to include the people he wants to to reach next. And I'm so glad that over time, The the generations of North River Church have embraced that principle that this becomes a safe place for people to start and we accept people where they are at. We are following Jesus when we do that. In the 1700s, when the Methodist movement began, the primary action took place outside of churches. Did you know this part of church history? Cities were growing larger and industry was fueled by coal that was dug in the coal mines outside the cities. The result was that the mining villages and factories in the city were overwhelmed or overwhelmed the support structures that were set up. Cities were horribly crowded. Factory work and mining work was dangerous. And there were shortages of housing, schools, and hospitals. And all this led to miserable conditions and desperate people throughout England. 
Many of the churches of that time were repulsed by the dirty, uneducated people who filled these factories and worked in the mines. So they did all that they could to keep them out of church. They made it clear that the unrefined lower classes were not welcome. George Whitfield, an Anglican minister, started preaching the gospel to the miners in the fields on their lunch breaks and then in their fields on their way home from work. This was seen as highly unusual. And after a while, Whitfield left for a mission trip to America. Think of that. We go to mission trips to other places, but back in that time, people were sending missionaries to America. We probably need more of that today. But before he left, he recruited his best friend, John Wesley, to take over. Wesley wasn't, sh- wasn't so sure about all this. He, he didn't like the thought of open-air preaching. He was nervous about identifying with these rough coal miners. But he went. And he wrote in his notes that he, quote, submitted to be more vile. In other words, he was lowering himself in the eyes of his peers to do this. What amazed Wesley was the way that the coal miners listened more attentively than people did in the church. And he preached about the love and grace of God. And people came, hundreds, even thousands of them. And the gospel of Jesus Christ was giving them hope in the midst of their difficult and challenging fight for survival. Wesley often saw white lines on the faces of these coal-dusted men as they were hearing the gospel, and their tears would wash away a little bit of the coal dust on their faces. And the Methodist movement began this way. John Wesley preached in the fields. His brother Charles wrote new songs and hymns that people loved to sing, songs that became some of the most well-loved hymns of the church of all time. And they organized people into small groups who met in the fields or in homes to talk about Jesus and the Bible and to pray for each other. And all of this happened outside of church and revival broke out. I should say outside of church buildings. The church was being the church in the fields. All because they crossed the boundaries of man-made traditions in order to follow Jesus on mission and to include the people that Jesus wanted to reach next. Again, here's the big idea. Following Jesus on mission forces us to cross man-made boundaries in order to include the people he wants to reach next. So we find this conclusion. Jesus gets us. The question is always, do we get Jesus? I wonder if you would close with me with this short prayer that I wrote as I was finishing this message. Let's read this together. Lord Jesus, keep us from erecting boundaries to keep out the people you want to invite in. Thank you for coming to reach us when we were dirty and desperate. Continue to bring us truth, love, and grace. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.